The following program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market. The more you know about our meat, the better. That's the bottom line at Whole Foods Market. Our standards require no added hormones and no antibiotics, ever. Our partnerships with farmers and ranchers allow us to offer the highest quality local and organic choices. And our newest program, the Global Animal Partnership's five-step animal welfare rating, sets unprecedented standards in the industry for beef, pork, and chicken. Standards you can see, labeled, when you walk into our stores. Visit WholeFoodsMarket.com for more information on the five-step rating. Because, hey, the more you know, the better. This is Sunday morning. It's time for the main course on Heritage Radio Network. We are broadcasting to you live from the back of Roberta's Restaurant in Bushwick at 261 Moore Street, where brunch is now being served. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, with my partner in crime. Hello. (laughs) That would be Patrick Martins there. Um, And our engineer and producer today is the inimitable, the wonderful, and the extraordinarily explosive Jack Inslee. He's so, explosive. I just thought I'd say that because he's just exploding with talent. But um, we have <laughs> we have a great show today. We yeah, have a it's really, interesting. really interesting show. Um, we have uh, first we'll have Dave Arnold who uh, does a wonderful show here on the network. Called he has our number Cooking one rated Issues. show. Yeah, and number nine of all food shows on iTunes. iTunes, right? yeah. Um, he's also the director of I think technology, culinary technology at the French Culinary Institute. He's also the founder of the Museum of Food and Drink, which is one of the things we'll be talking to him about. That's right, and we'll be talking about the Museum of Food and Drink right now, as well as uh, during that interview, just to kind of warm people up. Our fun Fundraiser, our inaugural fundraiser for the Museum of Food and Drink is coming up on March 27th. That's a Sunday. It'll take place at Del Posto Restaurant, um, one of Mario Batali's wonderful restaurants. Uh, the kitchen is uh, helmed by the excellent Mark Ladner. Um, and we have an incredible all-star cast of chefs who are going to be contributing their talents and their time and energy to this inaugural fundraiser. Cesare Casella from Sola Maria Rossi, David Chang from Momofuku, Wally Dufresne from WD50, Brooks Headley from Del Posto, Mark Ladner from Del Posto, Carlo Miracci from Roberta's, Nils Norin from FCI, and Christina Tosi from Mamafuku Milk Bar. We also have bartenders Damon Bolte, Jamie Gordon, Kenta Goto, Eben Clem, Audrey Audrey Sanders, Sanders. and Thomas Watt. From Death and Company. And yep. Audrey, of course, from the incredible Pegu Club, which, if you haven't visited, is really a fantastic experience. So we're going to talk all about this very important food museum, because it's funny, you know, I uh, my favorite museum in the world is the Natural History Museum, which is all wild animals. And I was like 18 years old before I even saw a wild animal. Meanwhile, food, I eat three or five times a day, and there's no museum about food. <laughs> That's right. So it's a kind of a funny Yeah, funny and there, thing. I don't think anyone uh, around the world has created anything quite like what... They're um, so fab in New Orleans, but there's not a natural history museum of food, so... Um, that that's going to be really interesting. We also have Stefan Cantor, who was one of the first vendors at Green Market, and it is her season right now because yeah. she is a maple syrup producer, and so she has all these lines hanging from trees, and her life's about to get crazy for the next yeah. three weeks. And some of the some of us from Heritage Foods are going to be going up to lend a hand and take a make a movie and 
Yeah, our goal is to get sell <laughs> a thousand liters of uh, our goal um, is to sell a thousand liters of this maple syrup because, yeah. you know, maple syrup should be eaten fresh, too, even though it lasts forever. That's right. So um, I'm very excited about the maple syrup. It's kind of the first of a series of, quote unquote, social buys that, you know, uh, we try to virally market some idea on behalf of a farmer. And it's almost like in the vein of the slow food presidium. Which is in the uh, it's a lot presidium is a Latin word for garrison, so it's almost like a militaristic type approach towards defending a farm and saving a food and selling a food and and you know making a big to do about something that deserves it. So um, the maple syrup we're going up there, we're tapping the trees, we're boiling the syrup in the sugar house, and then we're marketing it through Heritage Foods. Yeah, and then USA. we're selling it, and that is the key. We're selling it, yeah. and then a couple of weeks later, we're down to North Carolina to sell. Trigger fish, same thing, off the docks, wrap it in butcher paper, overnight it to people around the country so they can celebrate this unbelievable fish. So, Katie, you've been researching trigger fish. Tell us, what's its story? Well, there are literally dozens of varieties of trigger fish, and um, it's a very, in many cases, a very beautiful fish. I'm not sure exactly which variety they will be catching off of North Carolina, but um, it was originally considered sort of bycatch. Um, Nobody really thought that trigger fish was going to be as delicious. They would be fishing for something else, like flounder or hake or something um, down in those uh, southern waters, and, and they would come up with trigger fish, and they usually throw them out and or throw them back into the water so um then somebody decided they would try it and turned out to be a fish that is basically just like eating scallops it's sweet Mm. it's mild um it pairs well with lots and lots of different kinds of flavorings and um and it's really easy to cook so Mm. um the times actually had a nice piece about trigger fish a few weeks ago and uh, we'll be going down there with uh, with our golden boys. And, mm-hmm. That's uh, Dan and Andrea, getting, special projects getting, guy, yeah. mail order guy. Getting right down onto the docks with the fishermen, and uh, they'll be bringing them in. They catch them by line, hook mm-hmm. and line. This is all, we got a lot of help with our partners, um, Sean and Michael Dimon from Sea to Table. And you can do a uh, search for Sea number two. Table or Dimmin, D-I-M-I-N, on the Heritage Radio Network Yeah, because they've been on the show to talk about what they do and and the the business that they have, which is sort of the the seafood counterpoint to Heritage Heritage Foods, Foods. which is also very important because if you want to save it, you have to sell it. Um, yeah. And so then uh, we also have uh, lamb is uh, another kind of social buy. And we're going to be selling Heritage Foods. will be selling Tunis lamb this year, Katahdin lamb, Romney lamb. By pieces, but also the best way to buy it by the half lamb cut into its respective pieces. So you right. get a few weeks of, uh, of of lamb, spectacular meals, and you end up paying less per pound, like yeah. around twelve, fourteen dollars per pound when you buy a half lamb. So right. that's a, when you consider that a rack of lamb, for instance, can go for as much as thirty-two dollars a pound. Yep. that's a pretty good buy. And then uh, we're going to have uh, Dave in a couple minutes, but uh, just other little notes: um, the Snacky Tunes show has just compiled a best of CD which is going to be compiled, uh, or it's going to be premiered on the Heritage Radio Network website this week. And um, other news is I think we've gone through the first phase of approval for 501c3 status for the network. Wahoo. So that means means it'll be easier for you, the listener, to help us sustain our programming. It'll be a tax-deductible donation. And then uh, we'll be like NPR every uh, four to five minutes throughout the year. We will be reminding (laughs) you. Actually, I did a lot of driving this week, and it's a fun I know. (laughs) You can tell every minute. Oh, man. It was really bad on Friday. But it was, you know... they, they, they kept it down to a dull roar today. 
Yeah, that's nice. Well, we are going to uh, take our break and come back with uh, Dave, Dave Arnold, Arnold and talk about MoFad. On Heritage Radio Network, I'm your host, Katie Keeper, with my partner in crime. Patrick Martin. And our guest today, by phone, is the fabulous, the one and only... Indomitable. The incredible Dave Arnold. Wow. How you guys doing? Hey, we're hey, great. Hey, Dave. How you feeling, Dave? I'm doing well. Doing well. That's great. Are you uh, excited about the opening of MoFad? Or not the opening, but the inaugural fundraiser for Get MoFad? Get the ball rolling event. Well, I'm super excited. I mean, you know, our hope, obviously, is that we're going to raise awareness for, for what we're trying to build and also hire someone full-time who can do some hard, hard-hitting, hard serious fundraising in the next couple of years. I mean, we're hoping, I think, to get uh, to open in about five years' time is what we're looking for. About mm-hmm. What do you think, Patrick? About five years? Yeah, I was going to say four and a half, but yeah, we can extend it to five. <laughs> <laughs> not four and three quarters, though. Yeah, no, four and three quarters is a terrible number. Either four and a half or five. Yeah. yeah. Four and three quarters. It's well, um, Dave, for, let's start with, like, how did you come up with the idea of the Museum of Food and Drink? What was the genesis of this concept? Because well, it is a kind of radical idea. You know, uh, five years ago, when uh, or six years ago now, uh, when I first decided that this was something that I needed to do, there wasn't as much around. For instance, the, the uh, Southern Food and Beverage Museum that uh, exists now in New Orleans didn't have a, a place yet. Um, there was a there's a food museum uh, done by New York uh, his, uh, New York uh, Food Historical Museum that's dedicated to not have a, a an actual place. But I really felt uh, actually on a visit to the Natural History Museum that food needed a museum of that scope, a huge museum where you could actually go physical place, go and taste that you know food. You know, to me, food is culture. Right, and that's how I totally. experience culture. I, you know, I break bread with people. I meet with people when I go to other places uh, within the United States or, or abroad. All I want to know is how they eat, what they eat. Um, that's how I experience things. And so I wanted uh, a place that people could go that, where that was the primary focus. So a Smithsonian or a Natural History Museum of food. Um, but, you know, as you know, Patrick knows, you, know, you don't start a museum like that overnight, you know, to, you know that, that takes many, many decades, you know, 50, 60, 70 years to get to that size. So the idea is, is to start out um, small, but to be kind of heavy hitting from the beginning. So now, for instance, when you first came out with that idea, I mean, who did you just sit down one day at, uh, at your Commodore 64 and, and, and write all this stuff down? Or did you uh, talk to people? I mean, uh, you had already, you know, taken some steps. So tell us really about the beginning of this fabulous idea. Right. Well, I didn't have enough money for a Commodore 64 at the time. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it was, it was funny. I mean, at the time, I had uh, some limited contacts in, uh, in the food world. You know, I knew 
um, you know, like Jeffrey Steingarten. I knew, you know, Wiley Dufresne um, at the time. But really what happened is I, I staged a very small exhibit in 2004 or five at uh, actually I had a trade show at the Javits on American Country Ham. Mm-hmm. That exhibit came to the attention of the amazing Michael Batterberry, who took a shine to me and basically you know, thought the museum was, you know, a very good, very good project, important, and uh, had me uh, writing for Food Arts Magazine. Um, I wasn't originally, because, you know, anyone, I do technical, I'm the director of culinary technology at French Culinary Institute. I'm, you know, what I do in the food world is usually high-tech stuff, but at the time I was hired on at Food Arts to be a technical person and an historical person. Mm. Um, and the, the idea was really to raise, you know, m- you know, my profile in the food world so that I could accomplish this goal. Uh, subsequently, uh, Batterberry got me hired on to the French Culinary Institute, where I've been for the past five years, and unfortunately have been too busy to really advance the project. When uh, Michael, unfortunately, you know, passed away uh, last year. Very this summer, yes, past yeah. summer, yeah. Early, very early, way too early. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, you know, you never think someone like Michael's going to go. Never. You know what I mean? He's just such a presence anyway and for our listeners i mean he is the founder of uh, food and wine magazine then he started an industry publication that was read by really every chef it is continues to be read by every chef and he was very good friends with people like uh, schumacher uh the uh department assistant to the department of undersecretary of agriculture in the clinton administration and by the way we'll be our guest next week and he did things like uh, michael batterberry with gus the new american farmer which brought people from you know other countries he was very involved in whole some wave with Michelle Nishan. Nishan. So anyway, very powerful and good connector. Hugely influential and wonderful man, yeah. Right, he and, you know, and, and his wife, Ariane Butterberry, still uh, runs She's still Food Arts. Food Arts Ma- yeah. Mag- right, they were Absolutely. you know, a team and uh, just an incredible, an incredible duo and um, you know, a, a lot of things. You know, the, the, the full impact, the full impact that, that they've had on the American food scene is never going to be is never going to be known because they never took credit for anything. No, you know, I mean it's true. Uh, it's uh, you know it's crazy when you see all of the you know when you ask people like all the connections that uh, that those two have made. I mean, for instance, uh, you know they were part of the uh, the switch over uh, f- uh, to make uh, chefs in America have that be a professional you know, a professional designation as opposed to just you know, basically being a menial, uh, menial position. I mean, they, they did a lot of incredible, incredible things. I mean, you would almost have to put him on the level of a James Beard or a Julia oh, Child. Definitely. I mean, that, that you're really talking about the top of the pyramid in terms of importance and respect, uh, you know, from his peers and all that. Yes. Exactly. I, I he just didn't have his, yeah, he just didn't have his high profile among people who weren't among in consumers. the industry. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. He also, you know, was an amazing guy. But anyway... So it, it unfortunately took his passing for actually the three of us to have a conversation on actually this radio show uh, about this project. And, you know, Patrick basically said, you know, this, this is something that needs to happen. And so here we are making it happen. That's right. And um, now this is really, uh, um, I mean, let's just talk about this get the ball rolling fundraiser. What's so much fun is that you pick these themes and you basically uh, talking with the chefs assigned a theme to each chef so An historical theme how did you come up with these themes and uh, tell us a little bit about a couple of them because it's really wild i've never seen an event like it well okay so, so some of the 
some of this stuff, you know, basically I was just messing with people, you know. <laughs> so it's like, for instance, um, and, and, and I think in a good way, pushing pushing people, uh, you know. So Riley Dufresne, my, my brother-in-law, very widely known for uh, doing kind of cutting-edge work, I gave him caveman food, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. Just, you know, just to kind of... Um, because one of the fun things about like Riley is that you know he, you know he's known for this uh, for doing this kind of high technology work, but in reality you know he he was at John George for a long time. It's not like he can only do high tech. So I figured I'd give him the exact opposite. Perfect, uh, caveman. Um, How Mark did you Lad- come up with? And the... he's so imaginative. I know it's going to be a really interesting dish. So oh, tell yeah. us, Mark Ladner. Uh, what did you? Well, Mark Ladner, right? So I gave him what on the one hand is obvious because. He, you know, works at, you know, he's a chef, the chef at Del Posto, which is four-star Italian. Uh, I gave him Roman, which, again, seems obvious and easy, but in fact, Roman cuisine, which he does, you know, he has studied it a bunch, but Roman cuisine is entirely different from modern Italian cuisine. The, 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 spice, the spice mix, the flavor mix, the, the te- techniques used for cooking, everything about it, completely different from uh, modern Italian cuisine. And so I think that that's going to be an eye-opener for... Uh, most of the guests, how different it is. The one problem with Roman cuisine, if you've ever cooked it, is, is everything looks horrible. Looks, it's incredibly ugly cuisine. So we'll see what he does with it. But mm-hmm. well, and uh, everything is going to taste like that fermented anchovy sauce of the garum, right? Well, you'd think. But I don't know exactly what spices he's. But you know, but I've cooked a bunch of Roman stuff. Have you? And um, yeah, and, you know, it it, it, it does, It's not all similar. It doesn't taste Asian, which is strange, even though it's got a bunch of fish sauce. It does taste like it could could have come out of the Mediterranean, but the, the spice mixes thing, are things like um, asafoetida, which, of course, gives like a, an allium sulfur. kind of oniony flavor. Yeah, sulfurous in that way. Uh, the Indian fish sauce, really which is, What do you say? The Indian, Indian cuisine uses a lot of asafoetida. Yeah, yeah exactly. Well, you know, the, Ro- the Romans used it a lot. In fact, there was a... Uh, a type of that that was um, laser, which came, I think, from the Libya, that they made extinct uh, because they used it oh. so much. Yeah, and then they had to switch to asafetida, which is, you know, was their lesser of the two prized similar things. They used a lot of uh, lovage seed. Uh, you know, it's really an interesting interesting cuisine. Oh, I can't so, wait to try this. It's going to be great. Now, David's, uh, David Chang of Mamafuku, he uh, was given uh, a very challenging cuisine because, uh, you know, I don't ever imagine foods of Native Americans in this country being... Uh, you know, exploding with taste or diversity or something. But uh, how did you come up with his theme of American food pr- uh, in 1491? Well, I wanted to give him something <laughs> challenging, and I also really wanted to highlight. Um, I, I, I wanted to highlight the, the difference in cuisines that happened as a result of the of the plant exchange that went on after the. Um, after the New World and the Old World had uh, massive amounts of contact. Right. And, uh, you know, I could have, it would have been much easier to give him, let's say, um, for instance, a- Asian food before the advent of the, of the red pepper, which is a similar problem. But oh, that stuff is much uh, better documented than what was going on in the U.S. Uh, prior. Sure. And so I gave him that one because it was challenging and because I thought, he, you know, there's, he's fascinated with uh, acorns is one of the things he's fascinated with. Oh. And ac- acorns are a, a, a well-known Korean ingredient and a well-known Native American ingredient. Yes, so definitely. I maybe, yeah, so I thought maybe he could use that. But he went on, a, uh, on an insane research 
binge and had, you know, everyone on his staff looking this stuff up. He called, um, he called, uh, you know, three, you know, three or four, uh, you know, anthropologists. He called uh, the, the leaders of, of some uh, Native American uh, nations. He called. No kidding. He, oh man, he's gone completely crazy, and um, and his his uh, his re- result is that we know more about what a stegosaurus ate than what the mm. Lenape, than yeah. the Lenape people in uh, Manhattan <laughs> ate uh, in 1491. And, and, he's, and he's kind of upset about it, actually. Not about what we gave him, but just about that fact, because yeah. I think that you know, most people don't really know that. So that was very challenging, and I'm anxious to see what he, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm excited to see, rather, what, what he's going to come up with. Um, Carlos from Roberto got, uh, he actually chose, I don't know what he's doing, but New York 1784, so, so, so specific. Just after the Constitution, all these yeah. big documents got signed. So yeah. Uh, so I mean, I don't know exactly what you know what what he's up to, but uh, uh, glass that, shrimp or something I've seen well, on the menu. Well, a lot of lobsters and oysters. Yeah. I mean, that's what people were eating, at least in New York. Well, right? we definitely had a well, yeah, we had a lot of it. Um, By the way, Michael know, Batterberry wrote a great book about the history of New York City restaurants, and he, he has and a Ariane, really significant right. chapter on that period. I thought he would just glaze over that, but, uh, you know, this kind of concept of the inn, you know, that you would just stop sure. by and, and, and eat a but, simple meal. Right, well, that, uh, that book, um, uh, uh, what's it called, on the, uh, on the Town, right? Yep, yes. On the Town. Yeah, is the, the, the actually definitive, even though it's... Uh, I don't know when they wrote it. Maybe a decade or two ago is still the definitive work on on uh, the history of restaurants in New York. Yeah. Um, oh. So Nils Nils Norin from the French Culinary, my uh, partner in crime, uh, I gave him fad diets because I thought that would be hilarious. Yes, that, that will be funny. hilarious. Yeah. So now tell got, me, um, are these themes? Did you pick these themes with these chefs because you felt that they would become part of the museum curriculum? And what is? How do you envision that curriculum? And is there a connection with these themes? Yeah. Well, I think you know we, I chose these in part to be challenging to the individuals, and, and in part because I thought that uh, you know guests might find them interesting, and and in part because these are topics that I think are going to be uh, dealt with. I think you know the history of nu- nutrition. I mean, most people when they present nutrition, they nu- they present nutrition as here's what you need to do to eat to become healthy. I hate this sort of thing. I mean, I hate food. I, I don't like looking at food as a medicine. I like I like to look at it as something we enjoy to eat. And so, to me, it's much more interesting to explore the the flip side of nutrition, the bad side of nutrition, which is you know, and you, and you look at the history of these fad diets, you know, which show you know kind of how we've perverted uh, the idea of nutrition over the over the ages. And it's not like fad diets are new; they've been around since forever. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, I think that's definitely an interesting topic. Also, obviously, obviously, all the historical uh, ones are going to be are in line with what we would be doing uh, in the museum. Now, tell us. I mean, this museum. I mean, uh, uh, I mean, you want it to be a place where people are actually eating, but also seeing fun things. So, I mean, we haven't really talked about the mission, the trajectory of how you envision this museum uh, when you know when you founded it. Well, before we do that, let me just hit the two desserts because I don't want to leave the oh, dessert yes, guys out. Of course. Yeah. So, so uh, Bruce Headley from Del Posto, he, I gave him, and this is the only one that I gave him that's per- personal. Is uh, for me is I gave him um, uh, uh, Jewish desserts in Italy, and it's because yes. 
my yeah, my stepfather's family was part of the uh, group of people, former formerly uh, formerly Jewish people who were expelled from Spain, oh, settled really? in Italy, and brought with them a huge culinary uh, tradition. And so you know, there's a b- bunch of these kind of hidden um, Jewish desserts in Italian cuisine, yes. like a lot of chestnuts. So I don't know what he's doing, but it's an interesting little subset of culture that I thought was fun. My ex-husband actually wrote a book about that. Oh, yeah? Yeah, about the Jews being expelled, yeah. Nice. And the whole, yes, absolutely. The Swine's Wedding, I highly recommend. Huh, all right. <laughs> I, will, I will check it out. Yeah. And, um, and you, know, you can tell because my stepfather's name is, uh, is Adonisio, which derives from Adonai. But anyway, blah, blah, blah. And they, well, cool. they, they were lamb butchers in Italy for generations. Huh. Anyway, um, and uh, last, uh, but definitely not least, uh, in the middle, we're putting Christina Tozzi from Milk Bar. And I gave her space food. Space food. And the, Pop. And the reason I gave her space food, other than that fun, is that um, she writes a lot of the HACCP plans, which is Hazard Analysis Critical oh, yeah. Control Point. Yeah. And it, it's what a lot of chefs who use kind of sous vide, this new newer cooking technique, in restaurants have to, have to do in New York City. They have to have HACCP plans. And HACCP was de- uh, developed in part by big people like uh, Pillsbury. Sure. Uh, for space food. For, in fact, because, you know, if an astronaut gets the runs in space, it can be a problem. Mm-hmm. So, so HACCP was designed as, as a part of the space program. That's why I gave her space food. Very interesting. And I know when we were, you know, when we were, you know, working on the press release and everything for this, you're, you're visualizing a, an entire um, part of the museum or at least a, an exhibition about how space food has influenced on the production, you know, mass production of food across the board, basically. What are some of the innovations um, besides HACCP that, that came up as a result of, um, of the space program? Well, I think that's the, you know that's the big, that's the biggest biggest is uh, is HACCP. I mean, there's a lot of uh, packaging pa- you know the packaging work that's that's been done, mm-hmm. but HACCP has single-handedly changed the entire uh, industrial uh, industrial food production. I mean, it's only starting to touch us in the restaurant world, but it's completely. I mean, everything in an industrial level is uh, is HACCP. I mean, I think most people. You know, they, they think space food, they think freeze-dried ice cream, and yeah. then they're done. Yeah. Not, not that there's anything That's what wrong I with think Pop Rocks. Right, not that there's anything <laughs> wrong with freeze-dried ice cream. Pop Rocks, you know, I met, I met one of the inventors of Pop Rocks. Really? Yeah. Dave, yeah. did you see the He pe- killed Mikey. Well, I talked to him about that. He, he laughed his behind off. <laughs> uh, but, um, but I'll tell you one story he did tell me. I'm not allowed, I don't know if I'm allowed to tell it or not. But you know, uh, uh, for those of you listening, Pop Rocks did not kill Mikey. As far as we know, Mikey is alive and well. Mm-hmm. But they did want to ship a whole bunch of Pop Rocks in a, um, in a semi that leaked, and it rained on the semi, and the semi blew out. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. I love that. Yes. <laughs> so, so says the man who used to work on Pop Rocks. Did you uh, follow the fact that the uh, the inventor of, of cheese doodles? No, what are those? You know, those puffy cheese corn. You know, cool. What are those called? Yeah, like Jacks or cheese doodles. Right. That guy just died about three months ago. Oh, that's interesting. Yes, I mean, he was ninety three years old. Well, uh, it's been around a, a while. Cheese yeah, doodles are made on um, what's called a twin screw extruder, and those are a development uh, that we got from the plastics industry. But it, that's part of what I mean, like, you know, uh, Patrick and I have spoken a lot. We envision a big hall of, of grains, you know, in the museum, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. And so, like, part of that is going to be 
you know, a history of milling. So we, maybe we'll have a, 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 you know, a working mill to show people. But oh, at I the same so. time, yeah, right, but then at the same time, we'd have, uh, like, uh, a Matati Imano showing how things would be ground in Mesoamerica. We'd have, uh, you know, quern mills, other types of mills, because a lot of culture is determined by how uh, grains were milled in different in different areas, like what the foods were and how they were made. So, and then instance, just the natural um, environment, like for instance, all the falling water of New England lended itself perfectly to, to the you know mill. powering yeah. these super big uh, stones. Sure, and but you look at the difference in stone. So when 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 uh, when Europeans took over corn from the Mesoamericans, we had a fairly advanced milling technology at that point, right? So we didn't have to use a lot of hand manual labor to do our milling. Our milling would already have been taken to a centralized location. We would have had our grain ground at a mill and then returned to us, okay? What that meant is we had the ability to grind hard, dry corn. So when corn got introduced to European diets, it was being ground on big mills without having uh, been treated at all. In Mesoamerica, they were still grinding their corn on what's called the metatigimano, big stone, uh, basically they look like stone tables by right. hand. In order to effectively grind that way, it's back-breaking labor. I've done it. It's brutal. But in order to do it more effectively, their corn was uh, pre- pre-cooked and soaked in alkaline water, a process called nixtamalization, that made it easier for them to mill it. But at the same time, it also made niacin available and increased the calcium content. So when the Europeans took the corn without taking that process, that nixtamalization process, uh, we got things like pellagra and vitamin deficiencies because of the lack of niacin. So there's all sorts of interesting interrelated things in the way, uh, you know, grain and culture has moved around the world. And then attached to that, though, and this is, we go back to corn doodles, and that, uh, cheese doodles, and, uh, next to that is going to be the hall of like, ready-to-eat, like the, the ready-to-eat cereal exhibit where we're going to have puffing guns, which mm-hmm. was invented in the late, well, it was either late, between uh, the 1890s and 1904, when it was first shown at the St. Louis Exhibition, puffing guns were puff cereals invented, mm-hmm. extruded cereals, flaking rollers, I mean, amazing yes. stuff. I'm fascinated by all of those things. Now, am I the only one who's still fascinated by taxidermy and thinking that, well, like, all ask, the breeds of pigs throughout history? I was going to ask Dave history? earlier if he was planning on stuffing some, you know, seminal chefs. We're <laughs> 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 like, Bria Savaron will exhume him. Yeah. Or have Madame like Tussauds, Tussaud, right? Yeah. I think yeah. we should, Dave. I think yeah. that's a, I think that that's a great idea. That would be funny to see all the chefs. Totally Taivon. Is yeah. that how you pronounce yeah. it? Yeah, Taivon. Yeah, or Escoffier. Oh, man. Or, you know, what the Tuagro like. brothers. Or <laughs> For those of you out there, like, like Patrick, Patrick likes, if you've ever been to Patrick's office, Patrick enjoys some taxidermy. He has, like, like some squirrels fighting. That was like, Katie gave I, me I that. I purchased those for Patrick. Oh, awesome. Uh, just, aren't those an excellent thing? Yes, <laughs> Squirrels fighting in the in the corner of Patrick's office. Just vicious little rodents with, they are vicious with little moth-eaten tails. For Brunswick stew, yeah. Oh uh, yeah, well. Um, but you know, yeah, one of Patrick's great visions is to get is to get a stuffed version of every important pig breed. I think that's a good idea. Or, or it could be the cow breed or something, but you cow know, it should be. Big. 
it cow's just, a large thing. I know, yeah. but that would be such a, an imposing and wonderful exhibit. You could do chickens. I mean, all of the early yeah. breeds, early pure breeds of yeah, throughout of history, livestock including the extinct that, kinds. You know, absolutely. and I think people would be like, "Wow, who knew that <gasps> look they could at what look so lost. different?" Uh, you know, exactly. But also but, look at what we've lost and what we need to return to what, the you know agricultural community. You know, you know what's funny though. We think of like these ancient. The, the ancient breeds, like take pigs, right? Yeah. Most of the old breeds that we, like, quote, old breeds we have from uh, England and Europe, with the exception of certain very, very old strains, were all, uh, were all improved, they say, mm-hmm. by influx of uh, genetics from China in the 1700s. Oh. Yes, yeah, try and increase certain characteristics, mm-hmm. like... Uh, like speed of gain and and, uh, and mothering and stuff like that. So a lot of the older breeds changed radically in the 1700s because of influx of uh, Chinese uh, Chinese pig um, genetics. genetics. I mean, so there's there's been several waves of um, of change in uh, several waves of change in in even in pigs. You know, I mean, obviously right now we're extremely um, we we have an extreme uh, dearth of of uh, diversity, uh, and, and our pigs have clearly, clearly become what they should not be. But it's not like it hasn't been a constant source of change for, for generations. And the other cool thing about pigs, right, is that you know pigs return to a feral state very quickly. Yeah. You know, like Razorback, wild American Razorback pigs are introductions. I mean, they're obvi- they're not they're not native to here. All right. we had of you know peccaries and javelinas are the only things that were in um, on this continent. Prior to um, you know, prior to the conquistadors showing up with pigs. Right. By the way, uh, a, a couple of razorbacks broke into uh, Newman's pens and uh, mated with uh, some of the sows. And so, uh, when we bring some of Did those you just razorbacks, make that up? no. It's true. I mean, he's in really in the wilds of Arkansas. In so, the Ozarks, yeah. Yeah, so uh, one day when we bring some of that in next, Dave, I'll be sure to, uh, to ask you in, in the, to come and try it. But that reminds me, I mean, eating will be a big component of this. So how do you envision the eating and the education and, and the two kind of entwining? Well, to me, to me I mean, look, we already have a lot of books on food. Right, yes. thank God. Too many. And, and, we, and we have a lot of television shows on food. Too Way many. too many. Too many right. yeah. And so, you know, the, the thing is, is that, uh, you know, I, I learn the most when I can smell, touch, and taste. Mm-hmm. Th- that, that's when I learn the most. And so we're going to try to do as much of that in the museum as is possible. Smell, touch, taste, see. And I think that it provides a much better learning experience uh, for certain things and definitely for certain people than... Um, than just reading about it, although I love reading about things. You know what I mean? It's, and so, you know, it's not like we're going to send out a bunch of plated, plated products, because that's unreasonable. But, you know, the way I think, you know, we've talked about it is that you would buy, like, a series of taste tickets, almost like, you know, like rides at an amusement park. Mm-hmm. And you would hand them in, and you would get, you know, if we were doing, um, you know, you go into the Apple exhibit, you'd hand in, uh, you know, a taste thing, and then you could taste the, the, the hundred different varieties of apples we got shipped in from upstate New York that, that you know, for that, you know, month-long exhibit during apple season. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Or I like that. Right? I mean, or, you know, we'd have just very simple, because we don't want to do a lot of cooking. It's not about plated things, it's about, you know, learning the difference. So, like, if we were going to have... prosciuttos or something, you could try Spanish, Italian, American, all on, like, uh, at one time? Right. Comparative, comparative side-by-sides. Or, uh, you know, different, different grains. I mean, it's all about kind of showing fundamental differences and not about... Um, 
the I'm end. Not about massive plated things. Yeah. Although, I, you know, I would imagine at any one time we would, we're definitely going to have, obviously, one of the coolest museum cafes in the world and mm-hmm. obviously one of the coolest specialty food gift shops. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. that's obvious. That goes but, without saying, yes. Right. But, I mean, I imagine, you know, uh, one of the, the early things I've, I've thought of, one of the reasons actually I thought of the exhibit was, you know, what if we just shipped lock, I don't know if this is even feasible, but what if we shipped lock, stock, and barrel, uh, a street vendor from another country for three months and just had them operating out of the museum, boom. You know what I mean? Like, that would be, that would be amazing. That um, would be amazing. Right. So th- you know, this is the kind of thing, hopefully, that you see when, when, when you go there. You do have um, to be careful. I think I remember reading in that Natural History Museum book, they brought back some Eskimos and they got sick and died or something. <laughs> so have to make sure that <laughs> no, but Dave, you know what I think is so cool about this is like, I think that for parents... Um, that this would be an amazing destination if you were coming into, I mean, even if you live mm-hmm. in New York, but if you were coming to visit New York and you have kids, the Museum of Natural History and the Museum of Food and Drink, I mean, mm-hmm. your kids would learn so much. Yeah. Um, and and about, I love that it's a museum about quotidian things. I mean, that's yeah. actually a fascinating but thing. But I mean, as know? a child, what could be more interesting than seeing how they puff rice for Rice Krispies <laughs> yeah. or, you know, make cheese doodles or, or seltzer water or anything like that? You know, I mean, that stuff is fun. Well, yeah, all the technology things I think are really really a cool idea and, and the puff rice is going to be loud it's going to be awesome yeah, yeah. it's actually Boom. tremendous yeah. well the tickets are $250 and Dave has started a uh, a simple but informative website it's mofad m-o-f-a-d dot org and um, you can go to eventbrite mofad dot eventbrite b r i t e dot com and buy tickets that way, or just go to mofad dot org and it'll take you right to that yeah, mofad dot org. But the event is March twenty seventh at one p.m. at Del Posto Restaurant. We urge anyone who is within uh, walking or traveling distance to Could almost check argue. it out and really consider coming to this. This is going to be the culinary no event of the year. Bigger project, yeah. uh, no, no project could be more important than a beginning. You know, a food museum. Museum. And this is a uh, uh, the 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 quality of the chefs who are going to be attending yeah. it prove that this is really something that's going to happen. So come and support it. There is uh, actually really no higher calling than to educate future generations. You know about absolutely. Food. And from a selfish standpoint, I mean yeah. this dinner. I mean this uh, you know this event. I don't know of any other. Uh, meal being put on quite like it. Mm-hmm. There isn't. No, that's it. I mean, this is a, an absolutely once-in-a-lifetime opportunity mm-hmm. to not only have the work of all these great chefs in one place, mm-hmm. um, but secondly, to you know experience all of these historical, historically-based meals mm-hmm. and really see what it was like hundreds or thousands of years ago. And there's going to be a, a bag, a goodie bag that people that's take right. home. Swag there's bag. going to oh, be a, a silent, silent auction. auction where all the chefs are going to sign a coat, uh, you know, a kind of cooking coat. So I mean, very, very important stuff. But Dave, before we uh, head out, and thank you so much for for taking time on a Sunday, um, Cooking Issues is really one of the best food radio shows yeah, anywhere. Dave, we love you. Do you have oh, any, you. what are you going to be doing on this week's, uh, uh, do you even know yet what your well, theme is this week? No, I mean, usually what happens is people will, um, people will, you know, write in email and call mm-hmm. their stuff. So we try to do as much of, uh, you know, based on what people are interested in talking about mm-hmm. as possible. 
But, uh, for instance, last week I burned, severely burned my tongue on uh, oh. lye, on sodium hydroxide, so I'm sure... Dude! But, yeah, yeah, it was, it was kind of uh, unfortunate. That'll, oh, I'm sure, make its way into, uh, into the discussion. Oh, my God, uh, Dave. What were you doing, dare I ask? Well, Making well, comedy. You know, here, here's the thing. I was dividing <laughs> up a bunch of, uh, I was dividing up a bunch of containers, uh, you know, moving stuff around, and someone presented me with an unlabeled quart container, unlabeled quart container. I stupidly oh, put my finger in and tasted a little bit of it, and it turns out it was lye. Oh, for Ooh. God's yeah. sake. And, and uh, it was unbelievable, unbelievably awful. Oh, how painful. Uh, yeah, you know, go to the, like, instant Did you go to the emergency you room? Oh, yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, Did they so, know how to help you? Yeah, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, they all thought it was, uh, uh, you know, I can't say the word on the air, but, you know, I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> so I'm sure... Things like that will make it into the uh, into the conversation. Uh, I might have more to say about my recent uh, Florida trip to eat fruit and uh, and you know upcoming fruit visits. Things things like that. Sounds great. And awesome. I, I'm, I'm glad to hear that you're not lisping. So clearly, you didn't lose. Well, I was, you know, the tongue is, am- tongue is amazing. amazing. I mean, uh, I like I was my tongue was was literally bleeding. Oh, you know, like, poor guy! Yeah, it melted, melted, it melted the flesh on like one half of my tongue. And a day later, you know, uh, in the morning I was lisping. By the evening, uh, it didn't even really hurt anymore. Now it's true I'm totally jacked up on steroids, but huh. <laughs> but, 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 but but your tongue's an amazing thing, you know. That is extraordinary. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm Dave glad you. I'm glad you didn't foot home run burn right off the whole thing because then we wouldn't have cooking issues. No. Yeah, it'd be, it'd be <laughs> so you can't taste anything for another week or so, right? No, one half was okay. Okay. And so, like you know, it's like I, I, t- I you know, I can taste on, on that side, but really, the tongue bounces back like a trooper. It's amazing. That's the roof amazing. of my mouth still hurts more than my tongue does. Jesus, is, buddy. Yeah. Well, anyway, uh, get you. better. I can't wait to hear the show uh, this uh, Tuesday. And um, thanks so much for being on. Yeah, thanks That's- a lot, Dave. Hey, this was you. really fun. Mo- hey, any listeners, go to, the, go to the event. It's going to be a blast. Yeah. Mofad.org. All right. Thanks, Dave. I've got nowhere to go. Hand me a job till the market fell out. Tried hard to borrow, but there was no help. Now I've got nowhere to go. I need a job for these two hands. I'm a working man. Nowhere to go. One last look at the land. Auctioneer with his gavel in hand. And he said, it's got to go. My wife, now I've got nothing to show. I need a job for these two hands. I'm a working man, nowhere to go. Wonder nameless in the city, with my dirty work boots and old straw hat and hands. A song by Woody Guthrie This land is your land It ain't my land The following is a public service announcement from Heritage Radio Network Tune into the food scene Tuesdays at 3pm on the Heritage Radio Network 
Hosted by Michael Harlan Turkel, photo editor of Edible Brooklyn and Edible Manhattan magazines, he'll further explore the amalgamation of food and art by talking to artists from a multitude of media. Guests will range from photographers, food stylists, interior architects for restaurants, industrial designers, all the players that make you want to eat with your eyes. Get ready to feast your ears every Tuesday at 3 p.m. on the Heritage Radio Network. following is a public service announcement from Heritage Radio Network. Every Tuesday at 6.30 p.m., Chef Erica Wides hits the airwaves to become your own personal chef instructor. Chef Wides, along with esteemed guests from the culinary world, dissect topics that range from the complex to the deceptively simple, combining classic culinary know-how, personal experiences, and the occasional virtual history lesson. Why We Cook is a great listen for culinary vets and rookies alike. Again, that's Tuesdays at 6.30 p.m. on the Heritage Radio Network. Well, man, are we uh, happy to be back. Uh, that was a great interview with Dave Arnold. And now we have in studio someone who I've known for over 10 years, back through slow food days, um, when I was like, I need to learn about local farms. Let me go to the green market. And I would go to uh, the Union Square Market. And so we have in studio Stefan Cantor from Deep Mountain Maple. Welcome, welcome Stefan. Thank you, Patrick. Thanks, Katie. Thank it's you so much for having me here today. Are you kidding? A woman after my own heart. <laughs> yeah, you guys, uh, Katie fell in love with you already just in that yeah. five minutes uh, that you That's guys right. were at the That's bar. she had a big shot of whiskey in her coffee. In her coffee. <laughs> love a girl who can hold her liquor before noon on Sunday. And then we did our little uh, <laughs> shot of uh, Fernet as well. That's right. There was no grousing about that either. She went right for it. It's great. Let's That's loosen right up and talk about it. So, Stefan, now one of the questions, Katie and I, just to put in perspective for our listeners, um, maple syrup uh, used to just get uh, tapped. People would put a thing and uh, make a hole in a tree. It would fall into a bucket and you would walk it to the sugar house. But things have changed uh, since then. So can you tell us a little bit about your uh, the technology and syrup and process? Because uh, we are hitting maple syrup season right now. Well, yes, I can. Uh, the big change you're talking about is the the sort of switch from buckets, where, as Patrick said, uh, you put a hole in the tree, you put a little spout in the hole, that spout has a little hanger on it, you hang a bucket, the sap falls in the bucket, you have to walk around to every tree and dump that bucket into a bigger bucket and dump that into a tank on a sled pulled by a horse or a tractor and take it to the sugar house where you pour it into a big tank before you boil it to make the syrup. Um, that's pretty labor intensive. Sugaring is labor, labor intensive in general, but um, nowadays mm, almost everyone doing it on any large scale uses a plastic tubing. Now, were you, were you reluctant? Because uh, I know you and, and uh, Howie didn't probably just jump at the first technological innovation. It probably took you a while to convert. Correct. We, we, we <laughs> actually try never to jump at the next technological innovation. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and in this case, was the same. Um, 
there was a little, uh, shall we say, uh, marital tension over uh, whether or not we should switch to bu- uh, from buckets to tubing because Howie, my husband, is uh, is the one who does uh, all or most of the boiling, the actual transformation of the sap into syrup. So he was in the sugar house all day waiting for us to bring the sap to him. So he saw no good reason why we shouldn't just keep doing it that way. Right. Uh, but those of us who were actually out in the woods, sloshing through the snow, trying not to spill any, um, thought, well, maybe we should check out this new technology. So we didn't go all at once uh, from buckets to tubing. We did it little by little. And then it soon became evident that that was kind of crazy because... The timing, the the sort of the rhythm of the day is different with buckets and with tubing. And so we were finding it difficult to stay on top of everything. So eventually we switched our entire operation over to tubing. And I I have to say, I, I think we've done so without any decrease in the quality of the syrup, which is our ultimate aim, that we can make the best syrup possible. So... We think we still do. So how do the line, tell us just about tubing, and then Katie has a question, but like, what does that mean? I understand the concept of a tube from a tree, but it's sure, a complicated... Sure, they're all in- interconnected. So yeah, okay. thousands of meters of these things throughout the property. Right, so let's think about it. In, the easiest way to conceptualize it is to think of plumbing the woods. Mm-hmm. Right. Because really, uh, sap is, is a thin liquid like water. Maple sap, when it comes from the tree, is one and a half to two percent sugar, and the rest is water and minerals. So uh, you want to get this watery liquid from the tree to the sugar house, which is the name of the building where we boil the sap into syrup. Um, so really, you're just plumbing the woods, which means um, specifically that you still put, you still drill a little hole in the tree, you still put a spout in the hole, but that spout now, instead of being, instead of the sap dripping into a bucket, is now connected to a little piece of plastic tubing. This is five sixteenths inch tubing, it's very small, and um, that that sap, it, that that little piece is called the drop line that goes from the spout to the uh, to another line of plastic tubing. So it goes from that into bigger plastic tubing and from that into a bigger line. So finally we have like a one-inch line of sap gushing into a tank at the sugar house. And it's really quite amazing to stand at the tank when the sap is running hard and to just see all this liquid from all these trees just pouring out of the end of the line. It's, <laughs> it's How much does each tree produce? In That's a day. A good question. Um, a, well, in a day, hmm. And does that depend on weather conditions? It de- that, that completely depends on weather conditions, which we can talk some more about. Maple sugaring is probably one of the most weather-dependent agricultural operations there is. Dependent um, on what kind of weather? Dependent on the kind of weather that we get in the Northeast in the early spring, when the days begin to warm up above freezing and the nights are still cold. But let me answer this question. In the course of a season, um, you, you expect to get somewhere between a quart and a half gallon of syrup from each tap which is the, the little hole in the right. tree, right? 
after it's boiled down. That's after saying. it's boiled down. Now, so how many gallons of sap does it take to make a quart of syrup? It takes the the the, the, the ratio of sap to syrup is about forty to one. Good. Wow. And that's if you have very sweet sap. It can be as much as sixty to one. Mm. So sap varies in content. Is that because of the terroir? Sap varies in sugar content, and it yes, it's because of the terroir, and um, it also has to do with the time and the season, and the amount of rainfall, maybe or snow. Mm, rainfall is an important factor, or the snow cover, the moisture in the ground is an important factor affecting you know what kind of season you're going to have. You want a lot of moisture in the ground, How, so that so this season has been good for you guys. This season has been good so we had for a us. Ton of snow. Yeah, we've had a lot of snow. Although, actually, in northern <laughs> Vermont, you'd be surprised we haven't gotten as many of these big storms as you have in New York. Is that right? Yeah, a lot of them pass just to the south of us, but we still we've got right now March. What's today? The fifth, sixth. Six. We've probably got close to four feet of snow in the woods. Hmm. So now, uh, just uh, I have so many questions. It's so interesting. Uh, only one hole per tree? Pretty much. We have some really giant, really old trees, probably two or three hundred years old. And in those, we might put two. And where on a tree is the best place to do it? Anywhere you can reach. That won't be covered by snow. Um, oh, the important thing with that, it really, uh, the, the, the sap is rising in the... Um, cambium layer of the tree the outside Mm -hmm. under the bark Mm, under the bark and so really anywhere around the tree that's not so low that it would be covered with snow and not so high that you can't reach it is Mm -hmm. fine the important thing there is that in successive years you make sure that you don't put those holes too close to each other because obviously when you put a little hole in a tree um it's no big stress on the tree. The tree doesn't mind very much, but it does need to heal that hole mm-hmm. over time. So, you know, next year, you don't want to put another hole right next to the one from the previous year. You want to put it somewhere else. And, and you wouldn't put it back in the same place. No, no, you wouldn't put Why it back. Why not? Uh, you wouldn't get much from that because the... the does it make scar tissue? Yes. Oh, okay. And so when you would still see the, the hole, I mean, does it ever fully repair itself? Or, yes. Yeah. yeah so. it, it sure. In just a few years, it'll get to the point where um, you, you can't really find it anymore. Mm-hmm. Now, tell us about the land you picked. I mean, did you pick that property based off of knowing that you were going to be a maple syrup uh, producer, or did you just say one day, "Why aren't we producing maple syrup? I have hundreds of trees, and are, are all the trees up there producing maple syrup?" I mean, tell us a little bit about the sure. tree component. Well, as far as our our land and our sugar bush, um, we bought that land 27 years ago because we were looking to buy a sugar bush. And so what uh, what did, were you looking for? Because I know you can try to buy a sugar bush and not buy the best piece of property. So what were you looking for? This is true. Well, we were looking for um, a, a, a big stand of maples. Um, How many hmm. maple trees do you have, Christopher? We currently uh, tap a little over 5,000. Oh, good Lord. I, I was thinking like, you know, a couple hundred. 
No, they're selling at Union no. Square yeah. year round. We that wouldn't we wouldn't be able to supply all our customers at Union Square and in the city right. if we were only tapping a couple hundred. No, right. it's about five or uh, a little more than five thousand. Um, we just wanted to find a good, strong, healthy sugar bush. And let let me just digress a little here because I keep using these terms, and I think it's really yeah, interesting. May I? Yeah. Um, uh, the whole process of making maple syrup in the northeastern United States and in Canada, uh, which, by the way, is really the only where in the world it's done on any kind of uh, large scale. So not Oregon or any other places? No, out to the Midwest, yes. Mm -hmm. But uh, it it all comes from knowledge that the indigenous Americans had when the European colonists arrived, but that's a whole other conversation. Mm -hmm. Anyway, the whole process is all the terminology refers to sugar. Because, obviously, we're trying to get maple sugar from the tree. So, the thing itself is called sugaring. The person who does it is a sugar maker. The place where, it, where you boil the sap to syrup is the sugar house. It's not a sugar shack? No. <laughs> not in Vermont. But that's an interesting thing. That's a good question because... Patrick and I were talking the other day, yes, and he referred to a sugar shack. And I got kind of offended and said, wait a minute, it's not a sugar shack. It's a sugar house. Well, then I actually, a couple days later, I was reading an article about sugaring in Quebec. And in Quebec, they do refer to it as a sugar shack. Okay. But in Vermont, we call the building where the maple syrup is made a sugar house. Now, why, you might ask, would... You have to have a whole separate building in which to do this thing. Well, a lot of the reason is because if you're taking something that's one and a half, two percent sugar, and you're trying to produce a syrup, which the end result is about sixty-six and a half percent sugar. Wow. You can imagine you're evaporating a lot of water. Anybody who's ever tried to do it in their kitchen knows that. By the time you get some syrup, you've probably peeled all the wallpaper off the walls mm-hmm. and the paint is peeling, you know. <laughs> it's a lot of steam. Wow. So it seemed, you know, like the smarter thing to just build a building, put your operation in there, and actually any traditional sugar house has what we call a cupola, which means there's a hole in the roof mm-hmm. with a roof over that which is just to allow that steam to escape. So when you walk into a sugar house when someone's boiling, making syrup, often the whole room is enveloped in steam. You can't even see across the room. Hmm. And it smells good, I bet. It smells great. Yeah. It's beautiful. Now just oh, I gotta tell come us, uh, on this trip. No what question. is some of the art of boiling? So like how it was always like, I need to be in the boiling room. Like what yeah, are the... what can go wrong? What how is what is the right way to do it? Well, uh, lots of things can go wrong. Um, okay, ideally, you want to take this sap, which, again, is just barely sweet. You want to reduce it to syrup. You want to evaporate the water away as quickly as possible because, at best, you're going to be there for hours and hours. Mm-hmm. So, y- you want to boil very shallow now our pans let me describe the 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 scene yeah let's hear the setup so you're in this wooden building out in the deep in the woods and 
inside the building there are metal pans that are six hours are six feet wide and 16 feet long these are two pans a back pan and a front pan that are connected with you know pipes and all of those pans have sap and the sap is very shallow underneath these pans is a fire we we boil with a wood fire and we still believe in that a lot of people are using oil fired rigs now that's another you issue can explain to us afterwards why but we bad. use wood and so we've got this incredibly hot fire under these huge pans going full bore you just got to feed that fire and keep it roaring because you want to boil as fast as you can well if if you lose sap in any part of the pan and the pan becomes dry in a matter of minutes your pan would melt and fall into the fire mm-hmm. so all kinds of crazy things can happen because you've got uh, you have to keep everything level so you don't you know end up with a dry spot you want it shallow but not too shallow Sometimes the sap isn't coming fast enough into one part of the pan or another and it starts to get dry and then everybody's running around like crazy dumping sap into that to keep, you know, it's a, it can get nuts. Mm-hmm. When it's all going well, it's an amazing thing because the sap is coming into the back of the back pan thin like water and as it proceeds through channels in the pan slowly but surely it's becoming more and more concentrated. Until finally, in the front pan, it's moving through these channels. And when it finally gets to your spigot, the place where you're drawing it off, ideally, there and only there, is it turning into maple syrup. Mm. And to determine that, we use a couple of different methods. Um, We use a... a, um, we have a thermometer, a dial thermometer on the pan that tells us when it's at the temperature that says it's syrup. We also use a scoop and watch the syrup fall off the scoop. And when it sheets off, instead of dripping, mm-hmm. it's syrup. Mm-hmm. Then we draw it off into a bucket. And then the final and most important test is with a syrup hydrometer which gives us a specific density, which tells us the ratio of water to sugar. Um, the laws of the state of Vermont regarding maple syrup are the most um, strict of, of anywhere. And in Vermont, we're allowed only a one-point variation on the hydrometer, because if syrup is too thin, um, bacteria will, you know, it'll, it'll, it'll go bad. If it's too thick, sugars will precipitate out of it, and you'll have grainy syrup. So it has to be perfect. Hmm. Wow. And that brings us right into a discussion of grading. And mm-hmm. I know that consumers have seen that there are a variety of different grades that are available. Can you take us through some of those? And sure. What's desirable, what isn't, and mm-hmm. what's worth paying more for, that kind of stuff. In our 26, almost 27 years at Green Market, um, the most commonly asked question is, what's the difference between light and dark what's what's, by the way that we you know that's amazing 26 27 years at green market you're talking about you know one of the oldest stands at green market but that's not what we're talking about (laughs) but that's another story yeah that's another story um but where were we grading oh grading excuse me so uh what's the difference between light and dark well maple syrup is graded by color 
and corresponding to that color, the darker the syrup, the stronger the flavor tends mm-hmm. to be. Now, that's the short answer. Uh, the longer answer is that generally, early in the season, the trees are still very dormant. There aren't a lot of... The, 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 the sap that's in the tree is mostly water and sugar. The tree hasn't begun to release the other compounds that it will release later as the spring warms up. Mm-hmm. So and those generally, are the compounds that help it produce leaves? Or why, why should yeah, you care the, about that? The sap is what's producing... The sap is the tree's food. Yeah. And it's going to make the new leaves. And it's rising up in the tree in the spring. So what, what, it, what it matters to the color and the flavor is that generally early in the season, when, when the weather is still quite cold, the syrup will be very light in color and very delicate in flavor. Hmm. As the spring warms up, the sap darkens and makes darker syrup with stronger flavor, a little more complex flavor. Um, all, there are four grades of maple syrup in Vermont. Actually, five. From very light to very dark. The lightest is called fancy. Um, and was traditionally, historically, the most preferred. It's also the most difficult to make. Really? It requires a lot of skill. And it requires really really ideal weather conditions. The next grade darker is grade A medium amber. And in medium amber, you begin to taste some of these more complicated flavors. Um, You get a little more caramelization, um, a little more buttery. And then the next grade is grade A dark amber, which is probably the most... um, It's the flavor people associate most with that very traditional... Oh, maple. Because now you've got a lot of stuff going on in there. You've got caramelization. You've got that buttery flavor. You're tasting some of the vanillins that were in the tree sap. But you're also tasting the stronger flavors of the caramelization process. It's get, maybe it's a little smokier. It's, it's a stronger, more intense flavor. The darkest grade that can be sold retail is grade B. Mm-hmm. Um which a lot of people love, um, it's very strong. It's a very intense flavor. And sometimes, because as the, as, the, as the spring warms up and the trees get close to budding, the trees will begin to release compounds that are actually bitter and a little astringent. And when you have just a little bit of that in the syrup, it's, it's interesting. And, uh, you know, people who love strong flavors love all that stuff going on. Mm-hmm. Beyond grade B uh, is a grade in Vermont we call commercial. Grade C. Grade C. Or C for commercial. Commercial grade. That's going to be so full of bitterness and astringency that, uh, as um, someone said it, kind of the color and flavor of motor oil. So you sell that in New Hampshire? We don't sell that at all. <laughs> that, that, gets sold, uh, that gets sold pretty much to, for industrial use, I mean industrial food use, where you might see something that says, with real Vermont maple syrup. Mm. Well, That's what's in it. That's maybe what's in it. Yeah. So 
the answer to like which is the best, it's whatever you like best. Mm-hmm. It's really personal preference. Well, I can't think of any reason why I would not want a more maple flavor than a less maple. Well, flavor. actually, the 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 less ma- the more of the That's- maple of the bee is actually it, it pushes a single taste kind of through. It's like more of a punch in the stomach, but you really get the maple. Whereas the A is you know a little bit more vanilla. There's more complexity to it, so That's it's right. actually it goes opposite than what you would hmm. think. It's a you know like with beer, for instance, the mm-hmm. darker beers should be the better beers, but with mm-hmm. syrup, it kind of reverses itself. Yeah. I mean, I, I really, at this point, I stay away from the better, worse. You know, sure. it's, it's personal preference. But what Patrick said is very true. That, the, that when you get to a grade B, yeah, if you like, if you're somebody who likes a punch in the, you know. In the taste buds. A punch in the taste buds, you're going to like it. But what happens is it overwhelms some of those lovely, complex vanillins and butter and the stuff that's going on in the lighter mm. syrup. Um, I always say, you know, in a well-stocked kitchen, you really ought to have a couple of grades. Mm-hmm. I mean, I do. I have that luxury. You know, if I'm making, say I'm making a pecan pie or I'm making baked beans, um, I'm probably going to use a darker syrup. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe even grade B because that flavor will come through when I cook with it or bake with it. But I think it's a little indelicate for pancakes hmm. or for vanilla ice cream. So um, why don't we take a a 30-second break and uh, let Jack uh, grab his breath and uh, break the segment up, and we will come right back. uh, final Stephen Cantor. Yeah, final part of the interview. It's great. He wakes up early in the morning Puts on his only blue suit he hasn't quite mastered tying his tie on The way his sweet Sarah used to It's been years since he's talked to the good Lord He's not sure he even knows how But he won't be mowing the front yard today He goes to church on Sundays now No, he don't know the words to the old rugged cross But he sings them the best that he can This is the main course on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, with my co-host and partner in crime, Patrick Martins, and our guest... Our guest today is uh, Stefan Cantor from the upper northern reaches of the great state of Vermont. Mm-hmm. Um, and Stefan is telling us all about um, maple sugaring, because that's what she and her husband, Howie, do. They make maple syrup, and they've been bringing it down to New York and the New York City green markets for the last 27 years. So, um, welcome back. And um, Thank you. We were just, uh, we were, well, we had several questions. In fact, we could hardly... Um, so decide whose question to... was more important. No, but... nutrition. I, I, that's what you but brought up. But let's talk for a second about the nutrition of maple syrup because it is one of the oldest. I mean, certainly um, in American, early American cuisine, this was pretty much our only sugar source. Um, so what? What? tell us a little bit about the nutritional values of maple syrup, which are totally different from cane sugar and... and sorghum. Um, sorghum and the other sweeteners that we have come to rely on in this... 
around yeah, the world. Sure. Actually, maple syrup um, is different from cane sugar or beet sugar because it actually has nutritional content. Um, it has. You said earlier that uh, the the tree is bringing minerals up through the sap. I imagine those minerals. Those minerals are present in the off, syrup. Right? Yes, those minerals are present in the syrup. They're really good for you. Um, in, in a sense, it's like honey in that it's a sweetener that is has a lot of beneficial minerals. But the great thing is that they're different ones. So mm-hmm. you know, eat honey, eat maple, mm-hmm. you get a well-rounded uh, mineral intake. Um, uh, two of the, the the most important and most abundant minerals in maple syrup are magnesium and potassium. Hmm. Um, Great for your heart. Yes, and for your digestion, which is uh, interesting. Mm. I, I sort of just put this together. It's um, You know, there's a lot of old wisdom and uh, 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 traditional knowledge about things like this. And I've always heard that maple syrup is good for digestion. Hmm. But, you know, wh- but why? why? Well... I recently learned it's partly because magnesium and potassium are minerals that are it's it, that are required for healthy digestion. Hmm. So when you're deficient in those, you're going to have digestive troubles. So, so you mean like I have heartburn all the time? If I ate a spoonful of maple syrup every day, I would have less heartburn. Probably. I'm going to try it. Is Probably. that why in that maple syrup, lemon, and cayenne pepper diet, is mm-hmm. it maybe that the syrup helps with the digestion part of that? I mean, you've heard about that diet. Of right? course, I have. I'm so glad you brought this up. Uh-huh. Why? Because we're I'm, about to start. I am it. so glad you've given me an opportunity to. To speak to this, may I? But yes. you must be pro because it's more maple syrup I com- sales. I am absolutely pro. I think it's a great. Okay, this is a cleansing fast mm-hmm. with, where you make us you you make a lemonade basically, um, maple syrup, cayenne pepper, and lemon juice mm-hmm. in water. In a big jug, and it, you carry you it around just, with you the it, whole day. Whatever. You, Patrick you, and I are going to do that this week. You do it as many days as you want. You eat nothing else. You drink nothing else. Just this. But you can drink as much as you want. Exactly. Now, I think it's a wonderful thing. And and probably, I mean, I haven't really done it. You mean I can't add a (laughs) shot of whiskey to it? I've done it. Uh, Well, you can, but it wouldn't quite be the same thing. (laughs) Um, But I, I, yes, I know a lot of people have and totally attest to it. We sell quite a lot of syrup in the market to people who want to do the fast. You do eight days, uh, seven days, eight days, and you will lose 10 to 15 pounds, period. Like, if you really do do it, you just will. And the cayenne, this is what I guess... The cayenne triggers something in your brain that thinks you're eating like a meat or a savory. Well, or I thought something. the maple syrup, but the maple does syrup does that as well. As well yeah. That's a lot of insulin. yes. That's a lot of what's going on there. Okay. That that maple syrup and the cayenne sort of satisfy, you know, okay. your brain okay, in terms it. of it. Uh, but can I? This is important. The man who um, developed this this diet um, lived in California. And he he could understand the benefits of maple syrup, but the thing is he really had no idea how maple syrup is produced. And so in his book, he states that you must use grade B, and he says that the reason is because it's less refined. I have spent 27 years trying to correct this piece of misinformation. Mm-hmm. There is no refining in any maple syrup. It all contains the beneficial minerals. Mm-hmm. It's all fine to use for the cleansing fast. You Good do news. not have to use grade B. If you want to, great. 
no problem. But I just, you know, I, I, so many people walk up to the stand at the market and they, I got to have grade B because I'm doing this fast. And I say, okay, but you know, well, I, actually, I used to argue with them a little. I've kind of given up. Because, Absolutely. Because the problem is they believe this guy in California who wrote the book mm-hmm. instead of me who makes maple syrup. Mm-hmm. Okay, fine. I'll sell you what you want. And then at one point I thought, okay, I'm going to get in touch with this guy and I'm going to straighten him out. Well, unfortunately, he passed away, so I can't do that. So He was very slim <laughs> when he passed away. <laughs> he was right. <laughs> So, so you have not tried this yourself? Uh, no, well, I did it like for a day. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm afraid I'd be I'm really a, mean if I'm I did not that much for of a days. faster. I <laughs> I really love to eat. <laughs> yeah, well, I was thinking about doing it in conjunction with the quinoa diet. Uh-huh. I thought that would be good. Okay, mm-hmm. high protein. Let us know. Yeah. So is syrup is good for you? So I mean, if you're going to s- good for you, honey or syrup yes. is what should be used as sweeteners as opposed to cane or beet sugar, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And you know, we we make a, a. I mean, if you continue to boil the syrup once you've got syrup and you keep going, you mm-hmm. keep yeah. evaporating water out of it. You're going to reach some other states of chemistry. The final one being when you've evaporated every bit of water out of it and you'll end up with granulated maple sugar. Mm-hmm. And that's maple sugar candy. No, actually, maple sugar candy would be a step back from that. There's oh, still some moisture in the maple sugar candy. Um, you can use the maple sugar candy. You could pound it up and put it in something to sweeten it. But the, the the lovely thing about the granulated maple sugar is that it absolutely will replace white sugar in any recipe. Hmm. Great. So, I mean, it has the qualities you need for baking, for example. Mm-hmm. So um, we sell a lot of maple sugar to pastry chefs and people who are who are doing mm-hmm. some serious baking and, and want, a, want a good substitute for white sugar. You can also use maple syrup. I mean, that's the major sweetener in our house, obviously. I yeah. put it in everything. I When my kids were little, I sweetened their Kool-Aid with maple mm. syrup. Oh, man. <laughs> so um, now, who first figured it out that you could yeah. drill a hole in a tree and produce something delicious? Um, I love that question because it's my particular interest. Um, have a background what in with your anthropology in global and, studies yeah too. well um my background is anthropology and i'm i've been always fascinated by this the the the, the process of making maple syrup was um discovered figured out by uh, indigenous americans um we're not really sure when in history this happened um so when the european colonists first came to to the United States, to North America, it was the indigenous Americans who taught them how to do it. Um, and that could have been maybe a mistake that one day an arrow goes into a tree and this delicious substance comes out? Uh, well, I think it would have been more likely an observation that um, certain forest animals, squirrels, ah. for example, were attracted to, say, a place where a tree, a limb had broken off, the sap falls out, some of it evaporates away, and there's this sweet, sticky stuff left, and the squirrels are licking it, and somebody says, hmm, you know, let's let's put the finger uh, in there. That's pretty good. I hope it's not lie. Um, (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I'm I'm currently involved in a little personal research project to to, um, to understand better... uh, how the indigenous people made syrup, where that knowledge came from, 
how it was developed and 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 especially that moment in time when the transfer of that knowledge happened between the native americans and the european colonists i'm completely fascinated by that so um i'm more it's a project i'm working on right now so maybe when i know more I'll come back come and back that on would be for great. Sure. talk about it. Well, we'll be looking for your book on the subject, Stefan. Now, uh, tell us about like some things that frustrate you in the industry. I mean, obviously, people making false claims is one, but I mean, is there a bad way to make maple syrup? Um, what's different about you? Let's backtrack. What's different about your way than the way it's made commercially? Well, instance? I yeah, I want to address this question. Um, like any agricultural pursuit. There are a lot of pressures right now, um, financial and otherwise, um, to produce more, cheaper, faster. And like any other thing, that's probably goes along with a loss of quality. Because when you're trying to do something more, cheaper, faster, you're not really paying attention to what's most important about that food. So I've recently said, to me, maple syrup is the ultimate slow food. Absolutely. Maple trees themselves take their time. They grow very slowly. They live to be hundreds of years old. And the process of making syrup is the most, one of the most simple culinary concepts. It's just reduction. You just... Reducing this sap, concentrating the sugars, concentrating the flavors until you've achieved syrup. But you do that with the introduction of heat. And that heat is completely critical to the whole thing, the flavor that you're going to have as the end result. Because the caramelization brings flavor into the thing. The breaking down of the the fructose and the glucose in the syrup, which adds all kinds of flavor. All of this is important to the to the quality of the end product. So for Howie and myself, one of the most disturbing trends in uh, the maple sugaring uh, in recent years is... Um, Maybe not the use, but the overuse of a process called reverse osmosis, whereby water is taken out of the sap before you ever begin to boil it. Hmm. And when you... Reverse osmosis machines are quite expensive, um, but what they're going to do for you, if should you decide to purchase one and use it, is if you can take a bunch of water out of the sap before you start to boil it, obviously you're not going to have to cook it as long to end up with syrup. You use less fuel. You use less fuel. It takes less time. So you can see that would be uh, very um, attractive to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, when you do that, you're not... You're not simmering the syrup for mm-hmm. hours. You know, you're not cooking it as long. You're not getting all that complexity of flavor. And we know people. We know a lot, this is becoming very widespread in 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 maple syrup production. And anybody with a really big operation probably is using RO reverse osmosis. Now, individually. How far you take that, how how much water you take out before you begin to cook it is up to you as the individual producer. 
So we know people, for example, who use the RO, but they they bring it maybe from 2% sugar to 5 or 6%. And so the cooking process is still really all there. And and if I tasted that syrup and compared it to our syrup, I might not notice much flavor difference. But when you start getting up to 15, 16, 18% sugar, meaning you've taken out a lot of the water, right? you can cook it really fast and mm. go back to the TV show. <laughs> it, it, there's a, you know, you're losing something in quality. Now, this is my subjective opinion, but I believe it. And I think it's a very sad thing because the state of Vermont, which has always been right on it as mm-hmm. far as really strict standards, is completely ignoring what's going on here with this. Hmm. There is absolutely no governance of what you do with your RO machine. So while Vermont is, you know, still claiming, you know, we have the highest standards in the world and everybody's all concerned with the grades, back to the question about grades, maple syrup is graded strictly and only by color Uh the color is it so i can make an inferior tasting syrup that has the color that i'm after i can sell it as pure vermont maple syrup but it's not going to taste like what i can Mm -hmm. do if i actually start with the sap and boil it i um if I may just say one more thing, there's a, a great, fairly new book out by Rowan Jacobson called American Terroir, and one of his chapters is about maple syrup. And he he visited with maple sugar makers in Vermont in very high terrain. He calls it high mountain maple syrup, high mountain sugar bushes. And he talks about um, the this this high mountain terrain is. Um, it's mostly, it's this, you know, bedrock schist and nice as opposed to limestone. These trees are very stressed. They're up high on the mountain in the wind. They're struggling just to hang on to the earth. And their sap is not as sweet. Mm-hmm. So maybe, and, and our, our sugar bushes actually would qualify in, under his criteria as one of these high mountain sugar bushes. So the sap from a sugar bush like that is probably going to be 50 or 60 to 1. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to have to boil my sap longer to get syrup. And again, by doing that, I'm going to end up with a syrup that is of higher quality, as any wine aficionado would, would recognize this, that... The best wine is made from the grapes that are under some stress. Yeah, you're always trying to stress them out. And and it's the same with maple trees. And it's the same, actually, with any, you know, food, vegetable grown organically. Mm-hmm. If that vegetable has to fight to survive, it's going to be full of all kinds of things that taste really good. Its anger leads to explosive taste. <laughs> well, we do have uh, only a couple minutes left, so you're going to have to, in under a minute, the two things I just have to ask about. First of all, the Robertas of the Northeast Kingdom is Parker Pie. That is yes. such an amazing, fun clubhouse for that region. They didn't really have a clubhouse until your son opened it. So that give is us true. A, a brief uh, summary of that place. Well, thanks. Great to have an opportunity to put in a word for Parker Pie Company, which is located in West Glover, Vermont. And 
I tell you, without a doubt, makes the best pizza north of New York City. That's my completely objective opinion. Um, is New Haven? Wow. Uh, Slapper against New Haven right <laughs> excuse there. Excuse me. Um, well, Overrated. I would actually, if I wasn't sitting in New York, I would might say the best in the world. But anyway, mm. yes, my son opened a restaurant in West Glover, but it's a much more than a restaurant. It has become a wonderful community uh, uh, gathering place uh, that yeah, we didn't have before. Uh, he actually opened it in uh, the back of the old general store mm-hmm. uh, where they, there had been a bar most recently in eight, in the 1850s. Wow. <laughs> so now it's we have a, a wonderful pub and a pizzeria, uh, uh, wonderful young chefs who do incredible things, Laura like Thompson Roberta's. and Ben Trevitz. Looks like Roberta's just with the people are wearing more layers of clothing. Exactly. Like the big uh, <laughs> Exactly. So, yeah. And probably not as much ink. Come to West Glover and stop at Parker Pie. And then also, if you go up to that part, there's an amazing museum, the Bread and Puppet Museum, yeah. which is a free museum. You just walk in. There's not really anyone there. You could just, like, touch these uh, amazing massive puppets. And you and Howie had a, a seminal relationship with the Bread and Puppet movement. Yeah, Bread and Puppet Theater is, uh, actually started in New York City in the early 60s, moved to Vermont in the 70s, and um, both Howie and I have, have been working with Bread and Puppet for over 30 years. Um, uh, we don't so much anymore because we've got a lot of other things going on, but we're still very connected with the theater. That's our theater family, and Bread and Puppet Theater... Uh, still tours the world year-round to, to make a living, but is home in Vermont in the summer, um, running performances at the theater's farm every Sunday afternoon. Mm-hmm. And the Puppet Museum, the Bread and Puppet Museum, is housed in a beautiful old uh, barn. barn. Yeah, it's a lovely uh, place. Well, this was a by. former dairy farm, and uh, quite a, a extraordinary, spectacular um, uh Collection of it's like haunting almost puppets when you and walk the in work there. of Bread and Puppet Theater for the last forty years. It's this is um, puppet nice. theater for grown-ups. Absolutely. Well, um, our listeners can uh, taste uh, the uh, Stefan's maple syrup at Union Square Market every Friday. Every Saturday. Friday and Saturday year-round. Um, and may I also add that. Um, uh, we um, we sell our syrup to a lot of restaurants in the city, mm-hmm. uh, and we hope that um, you will all try and frequent those. Visit our website, um, which is deepmountainmaple.com. We do not sell our syrup online or by mail order, but, but our, we but do. You will be. But her- uh, yes, but Heritage Foods. Heritage Foods USA. Heritage but, Foods USA is selling a liter of uh, of this syrup um, a couple of days after the actual boiling, or a week or so after. And uh, Andrea Trabuco Campos is the head of uh, mail order for Heritage Foods, and he's organizing an expedition north with the documentary team and with uh, Muscle to help uh, kind of. Uh, Put these, uh, put the syrup into jugs, and for forty-five dollars, including delivery, you can get a liter of syrup delivered to your home. Just really within a few days of flowing in a tree. So go on and to heritage. knowing that it was made in this old-fashioned, time-honored tradition. Yeah. Yes, so very cool. So so check. So get in touch with Heritage Foods and order some maple syrup, Absolutely. or stop by and see us at the market. 
Uh, check out our website because it's meant to be um, information and education about Maple. And on the chef's page, you will find a listing of the restaurants in the city where our syrup is served. Well, fantastic. This has been a great show. We had Dave Arnold and then we had Stefan Cantor. And next week, very excited to have Gus Schumacher. Who is the former the, uh, Undersecretary of Agriculture for the Clinton administration and a major mover and shaker in the uh, in the food world and a very close friend of Michael Batterberry, yes. who we talked to uh, talked, talked about, about earlier. Today, yeah. yeah. So yeah. anyway, great show. Uh, stay tuned in the next weeks for more news on the syrup and more news, uh, you know, on food movement in general. Thank you, Jack Inslee, executive producer, and thanks to our sponsor. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening. following is a public service announcement from Heritage Foods USA. In late March, Dan, Andrea, Patrick, and the Heritage team are traveling to the coldest reaches of the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont to help the Cantor family tap sugar maple trees. Then the maple sap will flow down to the sugar house where it is boiled gently over a wood fire just as it has been for generations. Just a few days later, this grade A amber syrup will be poured into the beautiful glass jugs and sent to you for pancakes, waffles, desserts, glazing hams, or just drinking by the spoonful. There's only a limited supply, so order today. Each one-liter bottle is $45, including delivery. Delivery will be at the end of March, and we will notify you of the exact shipping date. Each shipment will include a CD explaining the whole process. You can also follow us on YouTube while we work and bottle. In the meantime, you can head over to the Heritage Radio Network archives and listen to Linda Palaccio talk about maple syrup on her show, A Taste of the Past, Episode 12. For more information, visit www.heritagefoodsusa.com. The following is a public service announcement from Heritage Radio Network. Join wine impresarios Aaron Fitzpatrick and Brian DeMarco as they dish out on the latest industry news with winemakers and tastemakers on Heritage Radio Network's revamped wine show, Unfiltered. Aaron Fitzpatrick, one of the first hosts on HRN with her program at the root of it, amps up the volume and unfiltered content with co-host Brian DeMarco in this 2011 Redux. True to the original format, Aaron and Brian will keep you abreast of current happenings and break down the news and global events, distilling complex into anecdotal stories that inspire. From media and political events to hailstorms in Argentina, no topic is out of bounds. Tune in every week to hear them chat up the industry's biggest personalities and host on-air tastings with visiting vintners and the country's hottest sommeliers. Whether you're an expert or an enthusiast, Unfiltered demystifies wine and lets you know what it really takes to get a bottle from the vineyard to your neighborhood wine shop. Unfiltered broadcasts live every Tuesday at 4 p.m. on Heritage Radio Network. The following is a public service announcement from the Museum of Food and Drink. Dave Arnold and Patrick Martins have gathered a team of New York's most innovative chefs and bartenders to create a nine-course fundraiser lunch at Del Posto, Sunday, March 27th. Their intent? To kickstart the greatest food museum in the world. The menu for this unprecedented event is derived from educational themes of the museum. Chefs will draw inspiration from sources outside their normal sphere. How will a cutting-edge chef handle the Paleolithic, or a dish only using pre-Columbian ingredients? What will a modern Italian chef do with ancient Rome? 
The chefs include David Chang of Momofuku, Wiley Dufresne of WD-50, Mark Ladner of Del Posto, Nils Noren of the French Culinary Institute, Cesare Casella of Salumaria Rossi, Carlo Maracci of Roberta's, Brooks Headley of Del Posto, and Christina Tozzi of Momofuku Milk Bar. Bartenders include Audrey Sanders of Pegu Club, Thomas Waugh of Death & Company, Simon Ford of Pernod Ricard, Damon Bolte of Prime Meats, and Eben Clem of BR Guest Restaurants. Proceeds from the event will directly support the Museum of Food and Drink. Tickets are very limited and $250 per person. To purchase tickets, please visit mofad.eventbrite.com. That's M-O-F-A-D dot eventbrite.com. Once again, M-O-F-A-D dot E-V-E-N-T-B-R-I-T-E dot com. Sponsored by Pernod Ricard, Heritage Foods USA, Pat LaFrieda Meats, Barterhouse Wines, Del Posto Restaurant.